Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. Our mission is to live the way of Jesus so we can leave the world better than we found it. If you'd like more information about our church, you can click on the link in the show notes or head to Christ-community.com. All right, let's get started. Today's scripture reading is going to be from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. It says, Now Adam knew his wife Eve. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man from the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock in their bathwashes. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to Abel and his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm preaching on Genesis 4. I don't know, uh, so if you've been on the internet in the past five years, you may have uh, heard of this uh, cultural phenomenon about this movie. I, I wasn't planning on talking about this. Um, it's called it's called Kazam, um, starring Sinbad. Um, so it's this, this movie about where, where Sinbad is some sort of genie and he's granting wishes. And what do you know? This movie actually doesn't exist. And yet so many people in their 20s and 30s and early 40s like think that it does. And so if you're having this moment where you're like, has Thorne preached on this before? Or is this like something weird that's going on? Yes, I have preached on this text before. Um, I preached on it two years ago and then a few years ago at a men's retreat. Um, taught on it uh, again, or what is again, but in the past. Um, clarity, Lord, clarity. Um, anyway, so I love this text. Um, it, to me, it is like, it is a gift that keeps on giving because it's so layered, it's so dense. Um, because every time I've taught on it, it's been a completely different kind of sermon. And yet it's what the text has to say. And then each time I'm just bringing out a different kind of sliver of it, um, that's fully there. So, um, anyway, that wasn't in my notes, but I thought I'd say that. Um, so here's what we're going to do today. Um, just so you know, this is not a three point sermon. I actually don't know if I've ever preached a three point sermon in my life. Uh, this is not a three-point sermon. What we're going to do is I'm going to walk through the text that Christy read. We're going to stop at verse 8, even though that's not where the story ends. That's where we're going to stop. Um, and then kind of along the way, I'm going to point out some highlights. You know, maybe if you're thinking about driving through the mountains, you know, you kind of, you're driving through, you see the views, and then you pull over, and then you get out of your car, and you kind of look out over, you know, the, the valley and the other mountains. Then you keep driving, and then you hop out of your car, and you look out the other mountains and valleys and stuff like that. So that's kind of what we'll do. Um, and then at the end, I want to highlight something very specific, and then maybe get into some pastoral application from there. So that's uh, where we're headed. So if you have your Bible, uh, keep it open in front of you. You're, we are going to be in the text. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, the whole text is there in the worship guide. So keep it there. You're going to want your eyes on it as we move forward. So let's start with our main characters. Like any good piece of literature, let's actually look and see who is in this story. Uh, so we start off with Adam and Eve. They're going to be uh, mostly irrelevant. We'll get to Eve in a little bit. 
God is in here. We'll get to him later too. Uh, the two characters I want to highlight now are Cain and Abel. And so we'll focus on those two. Uh, so who are Cain and Abel? Well, to be honest, we actually don't know that much about them. Uh, we know that Cain is older than Abel. We don't know how much older. Uh, we know that Cain is something of a farmer, and we know that Abel is a keeper of sheep. Uh, we don't know exactly what Cain farmed. We don't know how many sheep Abel had. Uh, that's really all we know about them. Uh, we don't know what their personalities are like. We don't know their relationship with their parents. That could be like really interesting. Uh, but we don't know much about them. We also don't know much about their relationship with God. We don't know. Uh, what they know from their parents is that, yeah, like us and God, when we started off really cool, uh, and then we messed up, at least what, assuming this is what they would tell their kids, we messed up, uh, God exiled us from the garden, we're still living in Eden, but outside the garden. Um, but we don't know what Adam and Eve think of God, and we don't know what Cain and Abel think of God. All we know is that Cain's older, Abel's younger, Cain's a farmer, Abel's a shepherd. That's about it. What we do know, and this is super interesting, uh, we know that Cain thought, like, had the idea to bring an offering to God. I don't know. I think that's interesting. We don't know his motivation, at least not yet. We may get to that. We don't know what he knows about offerings. Uh, we know that offerings haven't been commanded at this point in the Bible. That's interesting. Um, and here's something I learned even while I was preparing for this. So Bruce Walkey, he's an Old Testament scholar. Uh, he says, when you see the word offering here in this passage, think of it as like a tribute. Uh, every other time that this particular Hebrew word, so I'm told, I don't know Hebrew, um, but so I'm told, uh, this word means tribute every other place in the Hebrew scriptures. So is this not a sin offering? It's not even necessarily like a thankful offering. Think of it as a tribute, like a lesser kingdom might bring to a larger kingdom uh, to keep their relationship going. Um, so it's not a sacrifice for sin necessarily. It's not like a gratitude offering but we know that Cain brought a tribute, and that's what we know. And then what we find out uh, in the next verse, where are we? Uh, in verse 3, so in the course of time, Abel or Cain brought an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So Cain does it, and then Abel, younger brother like he is, he also brings an offering, following his older brother, just like younger brothers typically do. So Cain brings his stuff his farming stuff, the fruit of the ground, and Abel brings his shepherd stuff, the firstborn and the fat portions. Makes sense because he's a shepherd. But then the next sentence in verse four, if you'll look down with me, it says, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, verse five, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. I want us to dwell on this for a little bit. This is interesting to me. Why is that the case? Why did God see these offerings that are being brought to him? Seems like a good idea, paying tribute to a superior being than myself. Seems like kind of another place. Why would God look at one offering and have regard for it? The Hebrew there, again, I'm not a scholar, but from what I'm told, it's like literally like God looked upon Abel's offering, but Cain's offering, he didn't even look at it. He ignored it. He disregarded it. So the question for me, as I'm walking through this passage, as I'm studying, is why would God do that? 
again, his these beings that he has kind of indirectly created, they're bringing tribute to him. Why would he regard one and not regard the other? Well, here's what most scholars think. It wasn't necessarily the, the type of offering that he brought. Uh, this type of offering would have certainly been acceptable under Levitical law, but that's okay, that doesn't matter because that's not even in play here. That's three, two books later. Um, what most scholars think is that it wasn't the type of offering that God was rejected, rejected, but it was the quality of the offering that God rejected. Not the type, but the quality. You see there again in the text, Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. So it's stuff that Cain made, uh, but it's maybe not the best. But they compare it to Abel's, where it says the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. So this past Monday, about 7 a.m., I had a two-pound chuck roast, and I put it in the crock pot. And I let it simmer for 11 hours. Get home from work, it's about 6 o'clock, I open it up. What's the first part that I went for? The fat portions. Because it's the best. It's the chewiest. It's the densest. It carries the most flavor. And in a world where fridges aren't stocked and pantries aren't stocked, well, if you think back to biology class, fat carries twice as much energy as carbs and protein do. It's the most nutritious. Not only is it the most delicious, it is also the most nutritious. So what Abel's doing here is he's bringing the most valuable part of his meat, the part that he could use for survival. Again, he doesn't have a stock pantry. He doesn't have a stock fridge. This is important stuff. He's giving his best to God. And in the same way, you think about the firstborn. So, I mean, yeah, the, the firstborn has so much significance throughout the scriptures, but even thinking just from a very practical perspective. The firstborn is going to be the biggest. The firstborn is going to have the most meat on it. And again, in a world where there aren't stock refrigerators or pantries, you want to take advantage of all the meat that you have. Every bite counts in this world. It's likely the most biggest, most mature of the flock, and Abel is giving it up as a tribute to God. So you've got Abel who's bringing the best of his best. He, again, we don't know what he knows about God, but we know that he's giving his best for whatever reason. And then we've got Cain who you know, isn't bringing like some twigs that he found on the ground. Like it is fruit, but it's just his fruit. And it seems like because, <laughs> because the distinction is made in the scriptures, we ought to be paying attention to that. Cain's got his fruit and Abel's offering is better. So that's the starting point. But to me, at least, that doesn't, that doesn't fully answer the question of why God would totally look away from Cain's offering. Like, why would God still have no regard for it? That seems like an overreaction to me. I'm not a perfect parent by any means. But I can't think of a situation that I've ever been in where I would totally disregard something that my kid brought me. So why would God do that? See, this still doesn't fully scratch that edge of that question for me. Well, the text has more to say about it that should help us make sense of it. This is where I think it gets interesting. Uh, if you know this passage, you probably know everything that I've said already. Now, this passage doesn't explicitly say, but scholars have not a pretty full hint about it, and it all has to do with Cain's name. Now, before we get into it, uh, here's what you need to know about names in the, in the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament. Now, more often than not, uh, names are used in the Bible to reveal a person's character or just something about them. 
So for example, when you hear somebody's name in the Bible, like, like Adam, so Adam in Hebrew is pronounced Adam. It sounds a lot like the word Adamah, which is Hebrew for dirt. So Adam is the dirt creature, if that makes sense. So you're getting a sense of who Adam is, the role that he plays, because he is Adam, Adam, Adamah, which is dirt. In the same way, in this story, we've got Abel, and in Hebrew, Abel. It sounds a lot like the word for vapor, which is heaven. Uh, it's translated vanity oftentimes in Ecclesiastes. So that's the word, is it Abel, Abel, which is vapor, which is also interesting because in like three verses, Abel's going to be dead. Uh, here, gone, like vapor. Again, we're getting a sense of Abel's role in the story based on his name. And so it is the same with Cain. So in Cain, for Cain in Hebrew, uh, that word is something like Kayin. Okay, that's how you pronounce it, Kayin. And again, his name is a, is a uh, preview of what's to come. So what does Kayin mean? Well, it sounds a lot like the word for gotten or acquired. Gotten or acquired. Now, I thought about doing an audience uh, participation part. It's not going to. Um, but do uh, take a look at your copy of the scriptures or the worship guide. And I want you to see... Where else does that word show up in this passage? That's going to be important. If you're looking at the worship guide, a choir is not in here, but a gap, but gotten is. Look for it, see if you see it. I wish I'd done the audience participation. I'm not going to then. I will get it. All right, this is verse two. <laughs> Look there. Ah, it's not in verse two, it's the first one. I wrote that down wrong. This is where Eve says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And you see, like in my ESV right here, uh, there's actually a footnote that says, Cain sounds like the Hebrew for God, uh, for space, God, for the word God. Um, now, if you try to say that, that's okay. My CSB at home just says, like, Eve had a male. She just says, I had a male child. But that word gotten, acquired, um, is kana in the Hebrew. So, Cain, Kayin, was acquired kana. You see it, kayin, kana. Um, now that word kana has a very, very specific implication. It doesn't just mean I got something. It doesn't mean that I went to the grocery store and I acquired some bananas. Um, it really heavily implies I did it. It implies it was me. It's implying he's saying that I'm the one that made this happen. It's almost like uh, if we could be a little more real with uh, what he was trying to say here is I made a child and got a pitch in. Uh, now, I got this example from uh, Rabbi David Foreman. I wrote a great book called uh, The Beast That Practiced at the Door. So good, highly recommended, all about this story. Uh, Steve, you throw up a picture of the light bulb. Yeah, so that's an Edison light bulb. Uh, so uh, Rabbi Foreman used this fictitious example. Um, so in 1879, uh, January of 1879, Thomas Edison was just wrapping up his invention of the first light bulb. So I want you to just imagine that. So Edison, like he's been working on it, he's filaments, and that's the only thing I know inside of all. I don't know anything about this. Um, but he's working on it, and then he gets to the last step, and he's, he says, okay, I need a glass blower who can help me just close this up, create a vacuum that the electricity can flow through and then light happens. Um, so then he calls a local glass blower. The glass blower blows the glass, uh, creates the bulb that is going to put everything else inside. 
what Rabbi Foreman is saying, and I think what this text is trying to say, is basically like that glass blower saying, I made the light bulb with the help of Thomas Edison. All this guy did was make the was make the glass. Not that I can't make glass. Most of us can't make glass, but that is a trade. It's something that people can do. Edison was doing something unique. Edison made this thing that nobody had ever made before. And for the glass blower to have the arrogance to say something like, I made it, Edison helped, is essentially what Eve is doing. What he's doing here is downright arrogant. And she's kind of tipping her hand at the self-sufficiency that, she uh, that she's been growing ever since her exile from the garden. See, her name, Eve, it came from uh, the mother of all living. It seems like that name's kind of got to her head a little bit. So that's what Cain came. That's, uh, <laughs> that is the water into which he was born. Self-sufficiency, independence, acquisition on my own. And this is super interesting, too. Uh, you don't have this in your worship guide. But if you have your scriptures, flip over to the end of Genesis chapter 4. This is fascinating. Uh, Bruce Walkie, guy mentioned earlier, pointed this out. Um, so here in, at the beginning of chapter 4, Eve says, I have gotten, I have acquired, I have made a man with the help of God. At the end of chapter 4, she gives birth to Seth, her third child. And watch her change her tune after she gives birth. He says in verse 25, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. Do you feel the difference there? I have acquired a man with the help of God versus God has appointed for me another offspring. With Cain, she did it and God helped. With the other one, God did it and she received it. So again, that's the, that is the water from which Cain's birthed. And you see, what this text seemed to be implying here with his name is that Cain wasn't dependent on God, but Abel was. Because again, not only is it Eve naming Cain, but this is the role that Cain plays. This is the name that's given him, the role that he's acting out. Cain has a sense of independence from God, whereas Abel, we can see from the evidence that he brought to God, he wasn't self-sufficient. He was dependent. It's only from a place of dependence and of trust that you can actually give the best you have for your survival to God. Cain wasn't doing that. Abel surrendered his best because he trusted that God would provide him. He could afford to give it up because he trusted that God's got him. There we go. Where's Cain? Yeah, he brought his tribute, but he didn't bring his sense of surrender. And this is a thing that we're going to be tracing the entire way through the rest of this passage. Cain, like his mother, gave his offering from a posture of equal partnership with God. Again, just like Cain saying, yeah, God and I, we get along pretty well. I do my part, he does his. Just like the glass blower in Thomas Edison, not realizing that Cain's the one who, yeah, he grew the fruit, but God's the one that made it grow in the first place. Yeah. That arrogance. That self-sufficiency, that I don't need you really God attitude, that is why God had no regard for his offering. That is why God ignored it. Now, that would be a fine sermon right there, I think. You know, maybe I did it was like a challenge for like, so it's a ritter to God, you gotta trust him, because if you don't, God is going to ignore you. That doesn't sound like a good sermon after all. <laughs> 
maybe that wouldn't be false. <laughs> but I want to go a little bit further. I want to trace this theme of surrender as we go. So God ignores Cain's offering, and what is Cain's response? We'll look there again in verse 5. Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And I want to take some time to understand this a bit, because I think if we think about it, we can all kind of intuitively understand Cain's response. Have you ever been caught red-handed? Have you ever been caught and there was like, there was no question, there was no getting out of it, you did it, and it was wrong. I thought about getting an example from my own life, but my dad's here, so I'm like, yes. So I'll pick on other people. Um, so uh, in my work, so I'm a therapist by day, um, and I work with quite a number of men who get caught red-handed, uh, whether through affairs or addictions. And I don't mean to make light of their situations, uh, certainly not to make fun of it, but, but what I'm going to describe, I think, is very telling of a human dynamic that exists in pretty much all of us. Um, you know how the guys that I work with, you know how they respond when they get caught red-handed? They get angry. They look around and they try to find anything and everything to blame for what they did. Could be something like, uh, I don't know, like it wasn't my fault. Like I'm the victim here. Uh, it could be something like, well, I deserve this because I work so hard. I deserve this because think of it like maybe an affair. Because she doesn't pay any attention to me. She doesn't ask me how my day was. So I deserve to have this affair. It's blaming. Much funny enough, where have we heard that before? Yeah, the chapter before Genesis 3 with. Cain's parents, that's right. Yeah. Um, so you can see this is a human dynamic. But then the guys that I work with, after the anger dies down, maybe they spout off, they get mad because they were caught. Then what happens next? They start to shut down. They start to realize, oh crap, I did do this. The, uh, the defenses, the denial, the justification, the rationalization, it starts to die down a bit, and they don't know what to do, so they shut down. And I think that's what, uh, that's what Cain's doing here. He got caught, he gets angry. Maybe his first impulse is to blame God. Maybe his first impulse is to blame me. And he's so self-righteous, he's always just sucking up to God. Whatever it is, he got angry. And then he starts to feel the pain of what he's done, and he shuts down. And this next part, this could be a sermon too. Uh, this next part is maybe my favorite part of this entire story. Three words at the beginning of verse six. The Lord said it. The Lord said it. Cain messed up, got arrogant, got caught, gets angry, shuts down, and God initiates. God initiates. Just like God calls out to Adam and Eve after they eat of the fruit of the forbidden tree, forbidden tree. Just like Jesus looks at Peter and moves toward him after Peter denies him three times, which would 100% end your rabbi disciple relationship in that context. How shameful of Jesus to still run after this guy after he's denied him three times. And think about the times that you and I do that same thing again and again and again. Maybe you spouted off at your kids. Maybe like me, you got really self-righteous and judgmental again. Whatever it is, God doesn't wait for Cain. Jesus didn't wait for Peter. God doesn't wait for you and me. God initiates. That's right. 
every single time. And maybe we're going to keep going, but maybe this is what you need to hear this morning. Maybe you just need to hear that God is initiated towards you right now. God has not given up on you. God is with you. Yeah, you messed up. Yeah, you feel like crap. Maybe you blame God or you blame somebody else. God is still here. He is initiated. And here's how he does it. Verse 6, God asked Cain, God said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? My friends, that is called a rhetorical question. <laughs> God and Cain both know the answer to that question. Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? Translation, God's saying, hey man, you know what you did. You'll notice again that God doesn't wait for any answer. God continues, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Translation, hey man, like you and I, like we're good. But yeah, you messed up. You and I both know what happened. We both know why you're pissed off and why you're not talking to me. But we're good. Just do what you know to do. Surrender to me. Trust me. Give me your best. But then God continues, if you do not do well, if you don't surrender, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you or contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God's saying, you and me, again, like, we're good. Like, you know what to do. If you do well, you will be accepted, and you know that. But if you don't do well, if you keep hiding from me, moral failure, sin, just like your parents experienced, it is waiting for you. And man, it wants you. You see, what God is saying here is not a threat. <laughs> what God is saying here is a warning. God's not threatening Cain with what might happen if he doesn't get it together. God is saying this will inevitably happen. Sin is waiting for you if you don't surrender. Just like a beast of the field deceived Cain's parents in the garden in chapter 3, God warns Cain that the inner beast of sin will inevitably devour him if he doesn't surrender all that he has, not only his tribute, but his pain now to God. His own pain that he caused himself. God is saying that if you don't surrender that pain to me, if you don't trust that I'm still with you, if you don't stay with me, if you don't open yourself up to my love, you are going to get eaten alive. And then the end of our portion of text today, verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Like a vapor, it was gone. And just like God said, Cain has been devoured by hatred. Now the story goes on, and there is so much goodness in the second half of the story. But we're going to stop here. So I mentioned we'd, you know, kind of go on a tour and walk through the text, and then we kind of, you know, look out on the lookouts. Look out on the lookouts, is that right? Yeah. We'd look out on the lookouts, and we did that. And here's the very, very specific part that I want us to dwell on for the rest of our time. And it's this. And I'll put it in question form. The question is this. What will you do with your pain? What will you do with your pain? You see, that's the question I think that God is asking Cain. And I think that's the question that he has for us today. What will you do with your pain? Now, I'm curious what comes to mind when you think of pain. Uh, maybe it's physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain, maybe something relational. 
whatever it is, I, I like to really focus on the emotional and the spiritual side of it today. Now, because physical pain doesn't matter, like of course it does. And I know that like some of you in this room today experience physical pain on like an ongoing basis. So I don't want to say, I don't want to disregard that because it doesn't matter. I just want to stick with the emotional and spiritual side of it today. So when I say pain, that's that's what I mean. And here's what I mean about pain. So pain is pain. Is pain. Is pain is pain. It doesn't matter where it comes from. It doesn't matter who did it. Doesn't matter if I did it myself. Doesn't matter if you did it to me. It's all the same, and it's all got to be done with. Uh, so here's a kind of funny story. Uh, I didn't give him heads up that I was going to talk about this, but about uh, eight years ago, uh, Michael Todd and I were uh, working in his backyard, and we were lifting up a really heavy piece of metal, and we miscommunicated how we're going to do it, and so we both go and kind of lift it up. And I'm not ready for him to pick it up because I missed that we were going to do it at this time. And it ends up slicing my shit open. Um, and it bled everywhere. And then being the guys that we are, uh, another friend is also there. Uh, we go inside and get uh, paper towels and duct tape and try to... <laughs> and then somehow an angel of the Lord, uh, my wife, Anna Grace, walks up, who is a nurse, and says, y'all can't do this. Uh, y'all go to the hospital. <laughs> and so we did. Uh, so we go to the hospital and uh, we treat that wound how wounds need to be treated with stitches. So that was uh, May 26, 2015. Uh, June 2nd, so eight days later, uh, I am opening up a box and I've got my box cutter out. And let's see how I do it. I think I'm yeah, down on one knee like this. And you know, see where this is going. I break the one rule of box cutting, which is what. Yeah, I did it. <laughs> and so I slice it open, stab myself in the thigh. So eight days ago, I've got this slice on my shit that needed stitches. Eight days later, I had this puncture wound in my leg. And so how did I treat it? I went to the hospital and I got stitches. The point is this, y'all. No matter what, whether it's self-inflicted, whether it's inflicted by others, whether it's because you're a dummy or just because of a miscommunication. Pain has to be dealt with the same way. And emotional and spiritual pain is the exact same. I dealt with my physical pain, my injury, by getting stitches. The way that God made us to deal with our emotional and spiritual and relational pain is by surrendering it to him. Yeah. Again, whether you did it to yourself or whether somebody else did it to you, the way we treat that pain is surrender to God, openness to God. Because if we try to manage our pain on our own, one thing will happen, and it is violence. Just like what happened in this story. So in this story, Cain acted out toward his brother. What we see more and more, I think, in Western societies today is acting in toward ourselves. You see, if you manage your pain on your own, or if you attempt to manage your pain on your own because you can't, you will get eaten alive. You will either act out towards your brother or you will act in towards yourself, which looks like depression, anxiety, and addiction, among other things. Violence toward others or violence toward yourself. And just to be very clear, this is black and white. If you know me, you know that I lived in shades of gray. This is not that. If you do not surrender your pain to God, you will either act out or act in. No exceptions period, end of story. You will either commit violence toward others 
or you will commit violence toward yourself. Full stop. Obviously, we know what Cain did. We know that he failed. God is inviting us to bring our pain to him today. There's so much to the story, but one of one of the takeaways from the story is don't be like Cain. You are like Cain. That is one takeaway from the story. But it's also an invitation not to be that way. See, God is inviting us, don't try to manage it on your own. See, I don't know about y'all, but when I'm the most like stressed out or the most like wound up about a situation, I can guarantee you I am not praying about it. Now, I am not saying that prayer is always going to fix things, and I'm not saying that prayer is always going to make me feel better, because it sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes I'm more mad than I get no prayer than when I start. <laughs> but here's what I know. If I'm wound up about it, I guarantee you I'm not praying. See, God may not be a spiritual Santa Claus, and he may not be a spiritual Tylenol either who's always going to take away our pain in the moment. But inevitably, if I'm not praying about it, I'm trying to do it on my own, just like Eve and just like Cain. Sometimes it's because I don't want to. Sometimes it is very much an arrogant act of the will where I'm saying, God, I do not want you to be a part of this. I want to do my thing over here. More often than not for me, at least to my awareness at this point in my life, it's because I'm not even thinking about it. It doesn't even occur to me, you know what? I can do this to God. This might be a good thing. But either way, I'm not surrendering the pain. Either way, I am managing it on my own. I'm not involving God. I'm still taking the posture of Cain and Eve, saying that I can make I can make this with the help of God. I can fix this with the help of God. I can do this by myself, but with the help of God, of course. Just like the glass blower in Thomas Edison, I made light bulb with the help of Thomas Edison. It's me saying, I can manage my pain. But we know where that story goes. We've already talked about it. If I try to manage my pain, sin is crouching at my door. If you try to manage your pain on your own, sin is crouching at your door. It's desires for you. It will eat your life if you don't rule over it. More on that in a second. And there's one more thing I do want to talk about, and this is maybe thinking kind of visually, so we're talking about pain. It's maybe like a subcategory of pain, uh, particularly relational pain. Um, this isn't directly in the text, so maybe file this under pastoral application. Um, I want to talk about forgiveness for a minute. Um, a few caveats. So first off, uh, talking about forgiveness with a group of people is incredibly uh, fraught with uh, things that can go really wrong. Because when I talk about forgiveness, some people are thinking of like, my roommate didn't do the dishes last night and I'm mad about that. And some people might be thinking of abuse that's happening to them. There's such a wide variety of relational pain that can happen. Um, so whatever I, I'm about to say, um, know that I'm not trying to force anybody's hand on it. Forgiveness is a process. It is not necessarily a one-time event but it's ongoing and it's ever evolving. So I hope today, when as I talk about forgiveness, don't, again, don't feel like I'm forcing your hand, I'm not trying to jam you up. I bring this up to hopefully, um, maybe call your attention to ways that you've been trying to manage relational pain on your own, that God is inviting you to bring to him. 
So, and I particularly want to talk to the under 40 crowd here for a second, uh, maybe even the under 35, apparently. Um, and this is just something that I've noticed, uh, I guess, in the counselor, um, just a, as a kind of a cultural psychological phenomenon. Um, and that's this now, and it's not just us here in the room, by the way, this is like everybody. Uh, these are broad generalizations. But what I've noticed is that a lot of us under 40 years old uh, saw how our parents tried to manage their pain. And it was a lot of anger. It was a lot of forgive and forget. It was a lot of moving on, a lot of step up or live, a lot of like, we don't talk about that anymore. And we saw how uh, it didn't quite work for them in a lot of ways. And so we've really tried to learn from that. Uh, we saw that that didn't work. And so, again, like as this is what we do, we, our parents improve upon what their parents did, and we improve upon what our parents did. And so, our efforts to improve upon what our parents did, well, we pay a lot more attention to our pain. Uh, and I think that is so good on so many levels. I'm a counselor. I pay attention to pain for a living. And a lot of what I do is I give people feelings wills and say, hey, what is your pain? <laughs> but what I'm afraid we've done is we've probably swung the pendulum a little bit too far. I think what we've done is instead of ignoring it, we've held it really close. I'm like, it is my pain and I don't want to give it up. You see, our parents' generation, again, I think broadly speaking, this is, this is gross generalization, but our parents' generation, for uh, those of us under 40, attempted to manage their pain by ignoring it. What I'm seeing for some of us today is that we try to manage our pain, same thing, just different method, by paying too much attention to it and by holding it too close. What I see us doing when we hold our pain too close is that people become threats a lot more quickly than they need to be. I see us, again, the under 40 crowd, walking around uh, very protective of ourselves and paying a lot of attention to how other people could take advantage of us. Now, in one regard, that is 100% true. People will take advantage of you, and I don't want you to stop ignoring that. On the other hand, I wonder, and really it's not just a wonder, I believe that if we allow God to move into our pain and to begin to provide healing for the ways that we've been hurt, again, big or small, I really believe that we would see people less as threats and we would so much more easily connect with people. We wouldn't lose the awareness that people might take advantage of us or hurt us. I don't want us to lose that. I think that's a good thing. But I think there is some unhealed hurt, just for us generationally. I don't know what it is for you specifically, but for us as a generation, I just see us holding on to it a little bit too much. See, some of us are walking around protecting ourselves from threats that actually don't exist anymore. Uh, and here's the freedom, y'all. The freedom is that like, if we allowed God to move into that pain, he would heal us and give us freedom. And we would actually find the confidence to see like, oh, like we can handle hard things. We can do it. But if we don't surrender our pain to God, again, whether it's because you're ignoring it or whether it's because you're holding on to it too closely, sin will devour you. It will devour you with resentment, with bitterness, with fear, with anger. It's desires for you that you must rule over. So how? How do you rule over it? Uh, well, the text doesn't say 
But for those of us who know the gospel story, and for those of us who have been paying attention today, I would hope the answer is pretty clear. We rule over our pain. We rule over sin by surrendering it to God. We rule over our pain. We rule over our sin. We tame the inner beast inside of us by stepping out of the cage altogether and letting God handle it. You see, we surrender our pain just like Jesus did. Jesus in Gethsemane, feeling the pain and the anguish coming up on the cross and telling God just as much. He told God about it. He didn't ignore his pain. But ultimately, what did he do? Not as I will, but as you will. We surrender our pain again like Jesus, who after being abandoned by his closest followers, including Peter, he restored them all back to relationship, back to rabbi disciple with him. You think Jesus wasn't hurt when they abandoned him? Just because he's God, he still, he still feels pain. God still feels pain. Just because he's God doesn't mean he didn't feel every bit of that betrayal. But again, Jesus surrendering that pain opened himself up to restoration. Friends, Jesus is our example, and he is also our power. Through the cross, Jesus reconciles us to God for the ways that we have already arrogantly tried to manage our pain on our own. Whether through... Uh, but an act of the will saying, no, I don't want you to, or just living as if he does make us like I do a lot of the time. God has Jesus has reconciled us to God, and he empowers us to surrender. Follower of Jesus, you have his heart inside you now. You can open yourself up to the love of God because the one who did it completely lives within you. And that is the invitation today. You can surrender to God because he's good. He's not asking for your surrender because he needs your submission. God's asking for your surrender because he loves you and he doesn't want you to get eaten alive. God is asking for it because he knows that if we don't, we will get devoured. We weren't made to handle our pain on our own. We were made to do it with God, to receive from him and to surrender to his love. Sin's desire is for you, it is for me. But we may rule over it. We can rule by surrender, by opening ourselves up to the love of God. Let's pray. Father, we, as I, am aware of the ways that I have not surrendered to you. I'm aware that I really like to do things on my own. I'm aware that I like to, it makes me feel powerful, it makes me feel special, it makes me feel important. I don't like being dependent. But I'm also aware of my own experience and of what the text says. That sin will devour me if I don't surrender to you. So, Father, would you give us an awareness of the ways that we aren't surrendered? Would you give us an openness to you? Maybe we're not surrendered because we don't trust you. God, would you prove yourself trustworthy again? We need you to do it. And so we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.